If you're about to make a really bad move and one of your direct reports recognizes it, I think most of us would want them to say something. The problem is, is that often people don't. History is littered with examples of people not speaking up, even when their own careers and sometimes even their lives were on the line. Often, it's because the organization or leader wasn't intentional in advance about reducing that hesitation. In this episode, how to make it easier to challenge authority. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 575. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Of course, one of the key conversations that leaders need to have regularly, not only inside the organization, but outside the organization, is being able to sometimes challenge. But how do you do it in a respectful way? Today, I'm so glad to be able to welcome someone who's going to bring us such a unique and helpful perspective on how we can challenge when the time is right, but how do we do it in a way that's respectful and that also honors the relationships that we have in front of us? I'm so glad to welcome Richard Ryerson to the show. He has over 30 years of real-world practical leadership experience as a United States Marine Corps officer, professional aviator, and corporate executive. He's passionate about leadership and believes that it's central to every aspect of our lives. Central to his philosophy is that all of our leadership challenges should be met with the lifelong dedication and pursuit of being composed, confident, consistent, courageous, and compassionate. In addition to being a sought-after speaker, coach, and consultant, he's the host of the highly acclaimed Dose of Leadership podcast. He's also a commercial airline pilot, currently flying as a first officer on the Boeing 787 Dreamliner. Richard, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Dave, I've arrived. I'm a member of guest on your show. I can't believe this. It's a good day for me. Shame on me for not having had you on after all these years of both of us having talked and, and gotten to know each other. I'm so glad to have you on. And you have had such a fascinating career in leadership and aviation and in the corporate world. And I, I just think you... Uh, among so many people who just have a really unique perspective on this question of how to challenge respectfully. Because of course, many of us need to do this. We're called upon to do it. But a lot of people don't do this well in practice. And you've had a lot of training, especially as an aviator, of being able to do this well. And I think it might be interesting to start by looking at some history in aviation, because one thing that's fascinating about aviation is to be able to look at what didn't go well and to look at accidents that have happened in the past. It's interesting because the stakes are always very high, but also because we often have recordings when things don't go well in situations on airplanes. And um, the 1970s was not a great time for aviation safety, and a lot of lessons came out of that. And in particular, I thought it might be interesting to start with a um, uh, an accident that you put on my radar screen that happened in 1978 near Portland, a United Airlines flight. Could you frame what happened in that situation? Because I think it, there's a lot of lessons there for us to look at on being able to challenge in a respectful way. Yeah, for sure. The 70s w was not a good year. In fact, it was an inflection point 
if you look at U.S. aviation and you look at it today, it is so safe. I mean, the statistics of class A mishaps are so small. This dramatic change has happened over the last 30 years. And the 70s really was the inflection point. Uh, United 173 certainly put it into high gear for sure. It was as all these accidents, they're piloted by a highly experienced crew. I think that's what's important to point out on all of these. You weren't talking about brand new pilots, right? You're talking about a captain in flight 2017, 52, I mean, tens of thousands of hours, I think almost 27,000 hours, if I'm not mistaken on, on that one. And you had a first officer who was in his late 40s and a flight engineer who was in his early 40s. So these people have been flying you know, for 25 years plus, I think the captain had been flying for almost 27 years with United. And the other two guys have been with them, I think, over a decade. And basically, they departed from Denver heading towards Portland. 190 people, I think, on on the board. And as the landing gear was lowered as they coming into Portland, the crew felt this kind of weird vibration and the plane kind of yawed or moved to one side. And, and then we had this in the cockpit, you've got these gear indicator lights and the lack of an indicator light showing that it wasn't, they didn't know if they had the gear down or not. And so that would, the problem was like, let's go into a holding pattern. Let's diagnose the problem, which you do for gear emergencies, right? Because you usually got a bunch of extra gas. And so for the next hour or so, they flew over Portland and worked to identify the status of the landing gear and prepare for this potential emergency landing. Speaking from experience, I can tell you, and having gear malfunctions, they're usually not that big of a deal, right? You got plenty of time, you go over the checklist, and during this time, while they were all focused on this gear, nobody in the cockpit was effectively monitoring the fuel levels, which was made worse by the fact that the gear was down and the flaps were at 15 degrees or something like that. Because it was, So you had two items, the gear and the flaps, that were causing more drag, and which the crew didn't really take into account. And so bottom line is they're burning a lot more fuel than they're used to. And so as the crew finally prepared for this final approach, they lost their number one engine. And then the number two engine, a couple seconds later, flamed out. They ran out of gas. And then the last radio transmission, uh, it crashed into a wooded section about, I think it was about six to eight miles short of the airport. Of the crew members that were killed, two of them were killed. And then uh, the flight engineer, I think, and the lead flight attendant they sustained injuries, but they lived. And so they had some people who were alive that, in addition to the, the um, recording so they could talk about this. And so basically, after they investigate this, the probable cause was basically the failure of the captain, certainly not to monitor the big picture. But also the other contributing factor was the other two crew members to fully comprehend the criticality of the fuel state and successfully communicate the concern to the captain. And that's really, to me, the meat of that failure. You had two people in there that knew, and they got this from the testimony, that the fuel situation was a problem, but they were so kind of, I don't know if intimidated is the right word, or they were so wrapped up in the situation, and they put they gave so much deference to the captain that they they didn't speak up, even though Everything was telling them that they should, right? They talked about this listening recording. The fuel situation was on the minds of the, everybody in the cockpit. It was on their minds. And the transcripts of the recording confirms it. And then the, and the interviews subsequently 
confirm that as well. And so that to me is such a tragedy that could have been prevented simply if you had the courage and the willingness to speak up. It's so easy, I think, looking at it from the outside, reading the transcripts. I mean, it's it's haunting to read it. And yet it's easy on the outside to look at it and say like, well, people had knowledge, they were concerned about this. Why didn't they say anything? And yet we have we saw this pattern many, many times in accidents back in the 70s and 80s. Um, oh, for sure. Airlines and, and in and many other venues as well, too, in other industries where somebody knew and was very clearly identified a problem and yet didn't say anything. And it, it it's a there's an aspect of power dynamics there that's at play in this very much. And the one of the other terms, cognitive tunneling that's used of like you get f- so focused on a minor, relatively minor issue compared to the big picture and you miss the bigger picture or the person in power misses the bigger picture and other people see it, but they don't say anything. And one of the things that you pointed out to me, which I thought was interesting is that almost every accident in aviation, but I suspect it's true in a lot of places is a chain of events. And the key is to have self-awareness in the chain and to be able to interrupt it. Tell me what that looks like and how that plays out. Yeah. Planes just don't are flying one second and one second they're not. Right. I mean, rarely does a plane just blow up out of nowhere, with the exception of TWA 800, right, which is still kind of a mystery. But even then, you can look at every single aviation mishap. It's a series of links in a chain that if you take one link by itself and look at it by itself, it's fairly innocuous, i.e. a light bulb's burned out. The co-pilot's a little tired. He did had trouble sleeping last night because his back was hurting him. Captain got in a fight with his wife the night before. All, all by themselves, they don't really mean anything, but you start linking those things together. You got a tired co-pilot. You got a captain who's worried about getting a divorce. You know, you get a burned out light bulb, all these kind of things. And the ability to remember that everything that you're going through in any situation is a series of innocuous events linked together could lead to something. And so you treat these individual events a burned out light bulb. I'm a little tired with a little bit of reverence, if that makes sense. And so everything is important. And how does that apply to real life? Well, it's kind of the same thing. You don't look at, you're always outcome focused, you're outcome based, you're goal oriented, all that stuff. But you got to remember when you're going through these things, having the kind of humble teachable spirit to look at it and say, okay, well, how could this affect that? And so in the case of a professional aviator is like, I'm a little tired. I didn't get much sleep last night because my back was hurting. I'm going to tell the captain that when we get in the cockpit. Conversely, if I'm the captain and I had a little trouble, you know, I was up all night arguing with my wife and worried about a divorce. Maybe I pull myself off the schedule and call in sick because maybe I'm not in the best mental capacity to deal with that. It's so interesting to hear you say that out loud because I think that's the kind of thing that many of us don't really think about. And Obviously, you know, for those of us who aren't flying airplanes, it's it's a different context. And yet I don't think we often think about how what's going on and having that kind of transparency 
in our conversation. Like you might say to a captain, hey, I didn't sleep well last night. Like that's a factor. That's a risk that we should know about. And it's really interesting how that's evolved in aviation of getting really transparent on that. And it, it leads to something that evolved out of the 70s is called crew resource management. What is that? And how does that help to frame and to mitigate risk in situations like that? Well, just for example, like you, you hit on a great word there, transparency. And it's something that is still a challenge and um, we have to remind ourselves because it, let's face it, particularly in aviation and in business in general, but you definitely see it in aviation, professional aviators, you've got a handful of individuals who have probably come from an environment where they were mission leaning forward, right? Where it was always about the mission, particularly if you got people that came from the military, right? It's always about the mission. And that mission leaning forward mentality certainly infects you know, when you look at any professional, you know, you yourself and doing this podcast or, or being a coach or everything else, you have a, an ability to get things done. And we want that in ourselves and, our, and we want to be like ourselves. We want to have that in our people. The problem with that is it makes it very difficult to say, well, I didn't get much sleep last night because my back was hurting. There's a part of you that says to yourself, I'll just suck it up. Right? Because you think about how much of a pain it's going to be or the perception maybe this person's going to think you are, are, are weak and you can't hack it. It may, you're, you're thinking about and you're pressured like, ah, oh, you know, going to delay these passengers even more if they got to go find another pilot to fly this. Maybe I shouldn't be flying. Right. There's all kinds of things that come into play. And so CRM is this ability to create this very open and transparent environment where it is all about the transparency, the authenticity, the transparency, and even the vulnerability of being completely honest about the situation. It doesn't mean that we have to come to work and share all of our problems. Like the example I gave with the captain having marital problems, I don't have to come and tell you what's happening, but to have the courage to say, you know what, I am not in the best mental state to fly this airplane right now because I've got some personal problems at home. And that's all you have to say and we're taught as receivers of that information and what CRM gets to is that it's non it's non-judgmental because we have a bigger objective here and so that is the overriding factor and with that becomes this adherence to or this reverence to creating authenticity and transparency there's a phrase there that you may have heard me say Dave and I've said it a lot on my podcast. And it's the one piece of a device that has given me the most modicum of success outside of the cockpit. And it's something that directly rated from, from aviation. At the end of the brief, I flew with the great captain and, you know, we go through all our things in the brief and running through the checklist. And, and the last thing that this captain said to me was, look, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care if you think I'm smart, you think I'm dumb. I don't think you care if I'm angry or from your best friend. It's not your right to challenge me. It's your obligation. And that set the tone right? It's not your right to challenge me. It's your obligation. You are obligated to challenge me in a respectful manner because this isn't about me. It's about everybody that's back there. I use that in the corporate arena as a foundation towards creating this transparency that CRM really fosters. And, and if you want to know what, what CRM is really all about, it's that phrase right there, that it's not your right to challenge. It's an obligation. And when you know it's your obligation, then you're able to push through all the kind of 
ego and self-doubt, limiting belief, fears of, of speaking up. Does that answer your question? It does. And it's amazing how well it works. As you pointed out, I mean, uh, commercial aviation is, if not the safest, one of the most safest things that you can participate in, both as a pilot and as a passenger. And the... I did a little bit of research before our conversation on just looking at like recent accidents. There are very few that have happened in the last 10 years, at least domestically here in the United States. And the ones that are notable are almost always you know, a mechanical thing. The human error, the dynamics that we saw in the 70s of power dynamics and people not speaking up, that has, I don't want to say it's eliminated, but the, it's unbelievable the change that that has had in the last generation on airline safety. And it's interesting what you say that crew resource management, CRM, is really about this phrase. It's not your right to challenge, it's your obligation. And I, I would imagine part of this is just creating an environment in the cockpit where that's okay. Like you said, whether you like someone or you don't, or you feel intimidated by them or you don't. And it sounds like one of the things that really works for that is is the person in power saying that out loud to say, yeah, you know, I for expect sure. that. What do they teach you in training and in the simulations to do in order to create the environment where someone's more likely to speak up when they see something that isn't working? Yeah, there's a couple of things that happened even recently that I've I've noticed over the last few years that tends to work fairly well. And I think, first of all, they approach it to make sure that you have this humble, teachable spirit. I mean, this could be any of us. I think it's important to know out that, it's, that you never armchair quarterback these things, you know, and the people have died who have had tons more flight experience than me. So I, that kind of culture is ingrained. It's at least it has been to me in, in the training, like this humble, teachable spirit. But the second thing is, from a tactical standpoint that I think has worked really well over the last few years is they kind of have this red, yellow, green light system that we use as phrases. Like if something is happening, and this has happened a handful of times, I've been myself, never in the red, but if you're in the red, you're like so lost that if someone says that, hey guys, I'm in the red here, no matter what everybody is doing, everything stops to try to focus on this individual and like, why are you in the red? And we start talking about it, right? Because this person is so behind the power curve of what's going on that it could be a danger to the situation, if that makes sense. I've never had anybody say that. The middle is yellow. I mean, and it's subjective, right? I mean, how do you know you're from the yellow and the green? But there have been times and situations where abnormal situations have happened and the guys are where they're flying. I think everything's fine. And they, he spoke up and said, hey, you know, I'm kind of in the yellow here. I need to refocus. Whoa. And the same thing. Everybody, like, what's going on? Tell me what, what you're seeing. Or let me fly for a little bit. You get yourself situated. So this concept of just introducing a simple red, yellow, green light system. And when you hear it, it brings everybody back into what's important. Just using those simple phrases. Yeah. You know, the power of simplicity, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you think about it, flying a a plane like the 787, the complexity involved in that and all the things that you and, and your co-pilot need to know. And yet, when it comes down to the big picture, like the simpler it can be, and everyone knows that language, the mm -hmm. red, yellow, green, and when something happens that everyone's tuned to that because you've all learned that in training so that it's a common reference point that people can use and point to and say, hey, 
I know what to do when I get in a situation where I'm suddenly finding that I'm, you know, behind the curve a little bit, or I'm concerned about something, or I'm not tracking with what's going on in the situation where you can, you have, you have an ability to signal that really quickly to everyone else and everyone has the same language. Yep. It's that standardization. I mean, and I, I wouldn't have believed it until I've seen it. I mean, it, but everybody knows universally, no matter what your cultural background, where you come from, what red, yellow, green means. Everybody knows what that means. And if you said, I'm in the red here, there's something serious going on and we need to pay attention to it. As opposed to, and it simplifies it because maybe you can't even articulate what's going on or why you're feeling or what you're seeing. You can just blurt out, I'm in the red. Whoa, why? You know, and it just gets everybody focused. Very effective. The other thing that's in there is kind of that same, and they've done psychological studies on this from a standardization standpoint when we're training, when an abnormal situation happens, no matter what it is, it can be as innocuous as a little, you know, and, and most of them are, right? It's an innocuous like warning light comes on or a caution light comes on. When that happens, whoever's flying the aircraft or somebody says, I have the aircraft before we start saying anything else. And that's the pregnant pause that really brings the leadership back into the cockpit, a standardization thing. And they've done psychological studies like if, and they see it in the simulators, like, you know, you get a firelight and the worst possible time, everything else. Because there's a startle factor. I don't know if you've watched the Sully Sullenberger movie. I forgot. Yeah, what it's fascinating. That. And they talked about the startle factor in there, right? Like they were, they were kind of criticizing Sullenberger. Why didn't you go here? Why didn't you do that? Well, it's because they spent 13 seconds trying to figure what just happened. They were startled, right? And that's a long time. And what's important even in there, if you watch that movie and you watch that, which is a very good job, they just followed the transcript and whatever, when you happen, when you watch that kind of, 10 to 13 minute sequence or however long that is. He says that. He says, I have the aircraft. And now everybody in the cockpit knows, okay, somebody's flying. Because there's been a ton of accidents where people assume the other person's flying and nobody's mm. flying. And so, but just not only does it kind of assert and give everybody, okay, at least somebody's flying the plane right now, but they've done studies saying that that kind of it lessens the startle factor by a factor of double, right? I mean, it cuts it in half. Just by saying those words, it gets everybody kind of focused, much like red, yellow, green does. It gets everybody focused on, on the task at hand. And so those are some just like basic fundamental. I mean, it, it, it's not magic, right? It's just, but it gets to the how we operate as human beings to try to get us back. It starts the compartmentalization machine, which is so critical where it's needed, right? We're kind of stressful situations. You need to have the ability to compartmentalize and prioritize what's important. And just by saying that word, it starts that process and it is pretty yeah. effective. I'm hearing two big things. One of them is have a system. So know what the system is, have it decided and talked about up front. And then by having the system, the second big thing is, like that makes it easier than to say things out loud. And of course you do For need sure. to say things out loud, right? As you were saying that, I was thinking about a system that someone had taught me years ago. I used to do a, a little bit of executive coaching one-on-one -on -one, and someone had taught me years ago that it, it was helpful when going and engaging with a company of whoever had brought you in, which often wasn't the person you were coaching. It would often be that person's manager or someone else is to say out loud to that person who brought you in, if we start this engagement of coaching with this employee of yours, and I find out that it's you 
that's causing more of the situation or is a significant contributing factor to whatever's going on. What do you want me to do? And every single time I asked that question, the person who had hi- or was going to hire me or was planning to hire me would always say, well, I'd want you to tell me, of course. And so it was really interesting because I had a couple of situations where I did need to come back to that person after having a couple of conversations with the person that was coaching and to say, hey, I'm seeing a lot of things here that I'm not actually sure it's so much the employee. I'm, I'm, I think that it's it might be more contributing factors from you. And it was interesting. The fact that we had that conversation in advance, even though like I always knew how it was going to go, someone was always going to say, like, I want you to tell me if something comes up. But just the fact that we had had that conversation made it easier for me to be able to then do the second thing, which is actually to say it out loud when I needed to say something. But the other thing that was really interesting too is on a couple of times when I did need to bring something up, I would reference it and I'd say, remember when we talked about, like if I saw something that I knew you needed to hear and it was an issue that was maybe being caused by you, you remember that? And they'd go, yeah. And I'm like, what do I need to hear? And it would be like the normal barriers of like having to break down the discomfort and the speaking truth to power stuff, like it just wasn't there because we kind of had already done that. Yeah. You set the expectations early on. Yeah. Yeah. We preempted the conversation. And so like part of what I'm thinking here is like for all of us on this from a leadership standpoint is like, what can we do and say amongst our teams of like outside of the situation, but like just generally, how do we set the expectation of that? You know, we want people to challenge and it's your obligation to do that when we see stuff that's not working. And just like just by saying that out loud, just like that captain you you described, like that sounds like it's such a key part of this. It is. I mean, I took that phrase into corporate America and that's what I did. And when I would bring new members on the team or when I was onboarding somebody, when I was having my kind of conversation with them and about what my expectations were of them working on, on my team. That was one of the phrases that I used. I said, I am here. We've got lives at stake is what I would say. I don't care if we were manufacturing bird feeders or building hotels or whatever the case was of the things that I did. I would always tell people, it's not your right to challenge your obligation because we got lives at stake. You know, there's 300 employees here in this, in this building. There's 600 lives minimum that are counting on the, the paychecks of this, and this organization successful. So we need to make sure that we don't crash this organization into the mountain. We don't run out of gas. You know, we don't get hyper-focused and run out of gas like the the Flight 173. And to do that, you've got to have this culture where people feel empowered to speak up. It's tough. I mean, we've all been there. We've all been there where we, we should have spoke up and we didn't. I mean, it's happened to all of us and it'll happen to us again because we're human beings. We don't want to be wrong. We don't want to embarrass ourselves. We don't want to embarrass the other person or seem like we're taking authority away from this individual. And that's the other part of CRM too, is that, okay, we, we, you set the stage and the, the two things that I did were kind of standardization things and getting the language, you know, that we're all speaking the same language. But what do you do when you're in the middle of it and you're in the middle of an abnormal situation and somebody is lost and someone is in the red and they don't recognize they're in the red? That's a whole different thing, right? What if you see somebody in the red and they don't realize they're in the red? That's where it gets really challenging, you know, because even to the point where they teach us like, it's kind of three steps. The first one is the respectful tone. Hey, Skipper, I see that you're, for example, maybe the gear should be down by now, right? Maybe he's behind and like, boy, we should have put the gear down like three miles ago. You know, you do simple things like you just put your hand on the gear handles like, hey, Skipper, you ready for the gear? Right? Just asking a question. You don't say, uh... you know, just it's, it's about asking questions. Hey, Skipper, you ready for the gear? Hey, Skipper, you ready for the flaps here? 
you know, in a respectful way. Oh yeah, yeah, thank you, right? And you're bringing him back into the fold, and just by doing that, he realizes I'm behind the curve here, right? Or I was hyper focused on something, and just by that simple asking a question, you bring somebody back in. If he's still lost, then you got that second phase. Then you need to be directive. You know, hey Skipper, we should have put our gear down three miles ago. I suggest we put it down, right? So now you're being a little more directive. And then if they still ignore you, the third thing is like, look, Skipper, I got the aircraft right now. Why don't you sit back and you try to take it from them, right? It, I've never seen that happen, right? But I mean, those are the type of things that they kind of teach us to kind of ramp up the kind of level of your involvement to the point where we actually take the aircraft from the person, if that makes sense. Well, and what's what's fascinating about that is it recognizes that there may be a scenario where something like that would happen, right? And you've mm-hmm. got everyone has a process that they follow. So asking a question, just starting off. Secondly, if that doesn't work, making a suggestion. And then the third is you actually take control of the aircraft if someone's not able to function for whatever reason, right? Someone has a medical emergency. I mean, who knows, right? There's all kinds of things that could come up. And the fact that you are trained in advance on how to use that language and to ask those questions, like in simulation and in conversation, it's interesting how much in aviation, like it's assumed that we need to do a good job of having those structures and those roadmaps in order to address the human situations we all are capable of. And yet in so many other situations in leadership, we don't take the time to create the structure and go on that assumption. And and a little bit of that would go a long way, wouldn't it? It really does. And I think when we do our annual standardized training, when we have to go, no matter what, we have to go back and go through two or three days of training, right? To just to get recertified per FAA. The vast majority of that training isn't about the kind of stick and rudder monkey skills. That's just a given. All of that training is focused around putting yourself in situations where you have to communicate in that standardized way. The training is not about the actual flying of the plane. That's like a, like at this stage, it's a given. The flying part isn't hard. What's hard is communicating effectively in an abnormal situation so that the flying doesn't get out of control. When I was an instructor at Carnegie, we would often do an exercise where we'd invite people to think about the person that they knew in their lives personally, not like a famous person, person that they knew who they would say was a successful person. And we didn't put any qualifiers on it, like whatever they used to define success, financial values, whatever, position in the company, whatever. And then we would ask people, write down the qualities that you think make that person successful. And then we would get them all up on a whiteboard in the room. And Richard, every single time for 15 years, I did this exercise multiple times a week, every single time I did it, we'd get all the qualities up on the whiteboard. And 10, maybe 15% of them would be knowledge skill type things, would be the how do I fly the airplane kind of a thing in the aviation context. The other 80, 90% of things from people who they thought of on their own would be attitudes and behaviors and their ability to communicate well with others, their ability to handle difficult conversations, their ability to have good values. I mean, it just, it was really eye-opening to me, like how consistent that was over all kinds of people, industries, populations that really when it comes down to the difference maker, as far as 
success in almost anything, you get to a point in your career where the technical skills become assumed. We can always get better. But yeah. the things that really matter are the people stuff, like we've been talking about in this conversation. Absolutely. You know, we, we, we put so much emphasis on the talent and talent doesn't drive success. It's the, the leadership stuff that drives significance and success. Richard Ryerson flies the 787 all over the world and is the host of the Dose of Leadership podcast. Richard, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. I so appreciate it. Dave, thanks for having me on the show. It was, it was such an honor. Thank you. In preparing for this conversation with Richard, I spent some time online researching what pilots say about accidents. And I was struck in particular by a thread I found online talking about a general aviation accident from many years ago. And one of the pilots commented on the accident and said that only a stupid pilot would have done the thing that was done in this case. And a bunch of other pilots jumped into that conversation afterwards and said, you're missing the point. The problem is all of us are stupid pilots, at least occasionally. And I think that point lands so well for leaders, too. It doesn't matter how much our experience, how much success we've had, what our track record is. All of us are capable of making bad mistakes sometimes that other people could easily catch. The question here isn't, are you going to do something stupid? The question is, when you do something stupid, what are other people going to do or not to intervene? If that question is not a certain one for you on how that answer will go, I'd encourage you to take some inspiration from this conversation to perhaps make a bit of a shift. Uh, several other related episodes I'd recommend in relation to our conversation today with Richard. Uh, one of them is episode 241, The Way to Turn Followers into Leaders. David Marquet was my guest on that episode, the best-selling author of the popular book, Turn the Ship Around. Uh, one of the things David talks about early on in the book is when he took over as captain on the USS Santa Fe, uh, one of the very first days of them being under way. He gave an order that couldn't be followed because uh, it turned out he didn't have the right knowledge of the new ship that he was on. And nobody intervened to stop him from giving that order. It's when he realized that he had a cultural issue that he had to address on board to make sure that they would challenge him when he did something that wasn't right. Episode 241 is his story on how he began that journey of taking the USS Santa Fe and really helping it to emerge as one of the best-performing ships in the United States Navy. Also recommended is episode 328, How to Deal with Opponents and Adversaries with Peter Block. Uh, Richard shared with me before that many times in his career, he's needed to fly with someone that he didn't really care for personally, but he needed to be able to find a way to work with well and make sure everyone got to the destination safely. In episode 328, Peter and I talk about how do you deal politically inside an organization when someone is an opponent or an adversary? How do you still be able to navigate well, to be able to move forward, and to help people get what they want? episode 328 for those details. I'd also recommend episode 343 with Jordan Harbinger on how to talk to people who have power. Jordan, a very popular podcast host in his own right and has interviewed so many celebrities, people with power over the years. I know some of you have listened to his show as well. And in addition, he also brings people on his show who sometimes have a bit of fear of appearing in front of such a large audience. We talked about both of those lenses in episode 343. How does he make people find help people to find more comfort when they're coming on his show, but also 
How does he navigate that nervousness when talking to someone who has a lot more power or visibility than him? Episode 343 for some of those tactics and strategies. And then finally, no conversation about power is complete without the perspective from Vanessa Bonds. She joined me on episode 551 to teach us how to use power responsibly. Tons of insight. That's a great compliment to this conversation as well. All of those episodes, of course, you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. I'm inviting you to set up your free membership if you haven't already, because that will provide you with tons more resources and tools and a lens into our entire library since 2011. One of the things you can do inside the free membership is search each topic area to find the episodes that are going to be most relevant to you. We have topic areas under influence, under organizational politics, and under team leadership, which this episode is going to be followed in all three of those areas. Many more episodes over the years that we've aired with experts in all of those areas, plus many more. You can find all of them at coachingforleaders.com. Set up your free membership, and when you do, you can find the episode library and be able to search everything by topic. Next Monday, I'm glad to welcome Whitney Johnson to the show. She is going to be showing us how to help people engage in growth. You'll enjoy that conversation a bunch. I look forward to seeing you then. Have a great week and see you Monday with Whitney.